This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Oh, hey, we're back. What's up, Meg? Hey. Sorry to everybody that had to listen to just me on the last episode because it was Super Bowl weekend and it was pretty crazy. And we decided to do an episode and instead of, you know, us both just taking up all of our valuable Super Bowl time, I decided, let me just crush something else. So we did it. Uh, what'd you think of it, Meg? It was good. Was it? Did you even listen to it? Part of it. Oh, okay. I'll take it. This one, it's a little bit different. Sometimes we throw out some stuff about murders and this is another one of those ones. Kind of like true crime. We're a history slash true crime slash whatever we want it to be. And that's... uh. That's fun. I'm really enjoying this. So this is a story that uh, I don't think it was sent in, but it was something that I heard about and I wanted to learn more about it. And it's uh, it's pretty wild. And I think we should just get right into this. Um, I think we should do the intro. Yep. Before we do, shout out to Lux Edition Network. I appreciate everything out there. They're breaking out the different categories and everything on the website. So make sure you go check that out. It's all new. Casey's putting in the work. So go check it out. Deluxe Edition Network. Com. Check us out there. And the podcast of the month is the Films and Fermentation and Friends Talking Nerdy. And speaking of nerds, that's us. Let's see if the intro works this time. You think it's going to? Place your bets. Place your bets, everybody. Cross my fingers. You're going to cross them? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you let me know when we should try it. No. Hopefully that worked because I'm probably not going to edit it in. But either way, uh, super, like I said, this one, this one's interesting. Let's jump right into it. It is a little bit of a longer one. Sometimes you're going to get some short ones from us. Sometimes you're going to get some longer ones from us. But either way, let's do this one. All right. Sherry Rasmussen. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of interesting stories in, 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 that, that, that come from this. So let's just jump right into this. We're going to talk about who Sherry was to kind of get Meg up to speed. So uh, she was a bright young woman, a nurse, a newlywed, lost her life in a just kind of a way that shook the community. And um, again, we're going to talk about a little bit of a background. Uh, was it? She was obviously a beloved daughter of Nels and Loretta Rasmussen and the sister of Teresa and Connie. She was just 29 years old and working as a nursing director at the Glendale Adventist Hospital. Um she was obviously super smart. She had a passion for helping others in the medical field. As a teenager, she actually skipped several grades and started college at just 16 years old. Wow. Isn't that wild? Like a, like a Doogie Howser. Right. Unless Do- I think Doogie was a little he bit younger. He was quite a bit younger, I think. And he was a uh, TV. This was real life. Mm-hmm. Um, her and her father had a very close relationship. And a lot of people even said that, you know, it was kind of her father's pride and joy. Uh, her father was a doctor, was a dentist, and really wanted Cherry to be a doctor as well. She chose the nurse life because she wanted to be a wife, a mom, and kind of not have a job that required her to be on call 24-7 and miss out on the lives of her children, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did end up finding the love of her life, a charming man who some even said could have been a male model, John Rutten. That's how you'd say that, right? Yeah. 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 We're going to go with that. Mr. John 
Rutan. Well, you see John might see Rutan. Sorry to the Rutan family if I said it wrong. He was a he was absolutely. I was going to say he was a crazy. He was crazy about Sherry. <laughs> uh, so two totally different things. Very much so. Uh, <laughs> but unless you know the story, maybe he was crazy. I don't know the story. Hmm? Going in blind. Hey yo. Um. So you might be thinking, hey, how did these? Uh, how did they meet? Well, they met in the summer of 1984. Hell of a year, right? He was a recent graduate of UCLA. Their connection was immediate and it really seemed like true love. It was the kind of love that was so strong, everything else didn't matter. It was like everything else in their life um, just kind of went away. They met, they fell hard, they fell in love. They were married in November of 1985. They get married then the holiday kind of season sneaks up on you. They had a lot to be happy about. Families were visiting and they were starting to really settle into their newly married life. John started a new job with an engineering company. She was the director. As we mentioned earlier, things seem pretty good, but sometimes they're not always as good as they seem. And this is one of those times that it wasn't as good at all. Hmm. It's a bummer. Yeah. So speaking of bummers, or maybe not, John has a friend. Well, let's keep it like, yeah, he had a friend um, named Stephanie Lazarus. Lazarus. Stephanie Lazarus. That's how I would say it. That's what we're going with. Stephanie, a fellow UCLA student <laughs> and a political science major from Simi Valley, California. Both were very athletic, and um, Stephanie even played on the UCLA's JV basketball team. Stephanie and John were pretty close, although John never considered them a couple or even had an actual relationship, despite them admitting that they did hook up about 20 to 30 times between 1981 and 1984. There was an event that some believe could have really set off Stephanie um, where she actually threw John a surprise party on his 25th birthday, unaware that he had been dating other women or that uh, he had actually developed a serious relationship with Rasmussen. When she learned that he was seriously involved with her, she got a little angry. And um, even I, I believe it was quoted saying, I'm truly in love with John and the past year has really torn me up. And this was a letter um, that was written um, to uh, John's mother in August of 1985. And then it also said, I wish it didn't end the way it did. And I don't think I'll ever understand the decision. In her own journal, she writes, I really don't feel like working. I found out that John is getting married. She was depressed. Uh, she was visiting all these condos. And it was just, just kind of a, a weird friendship that... Uh, Obviously, it's kind of one of those situations where she thinks it's more than really what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, you do see this in a in a in a story and everything else like that. But there was one kind of situation or um, interaction is that the right word? Where um, she actually brought a set of skis, all right, over. And uh, this is this is again the um, Lazarus brought this over to John. And while Sherry was here at the apartment as well, brought over some skis and asked John to wax them. And, you know, Sherry was kind of like, hey, this is weird. Maybe you guys shouldn't be as close in doing that. And he just kind of shrugged it off like, nope, it's all good. So he still waxes them. She then comes over the next day. And she's a cop dressed in uniform to pick up the skis after he left for work. So, again... He, she then says, Hey, can she stop coming over? And he just was like, nah, it's all good. Don't even worry about it. So there's that. Interesting. 
So um, if you read the title, it's obviously The Death of Sherry Rasmussen. Let's kind of paint the pink sh- picture of the fateful day. Um, let's talk a little bit about the crime scene and some stuff now that we have a backstory. Think we should get into this? Yes. All right. So it's the morning, February 24th, 1986, just a couple of ways, a couple of days, you know, before this releases on the 19th. So um, John leaves the couple's condominium on Balboa Boulevard in Van Nuys to go to work. Sherry's still in bed. She was supposed to supervise a human resources class for some of her nursing charges that morning, and she just didn't feel like doing it. It was mandated by the hospital, and she thought it was less than solid on its value. So she told John she was thinking about just calling in sick, staying home for the day. That way she didn't have to do it, just kind of avoid it. She tells John that, hey, I'm going to call in sick, I think. Uh, Using a back injury she had incurred while doing aerobics the day before as an excuse. He encouraged her just to go in, get the class over with, uh, being mandated and everything. She was still undecided under the covers when he walks out the front door at 7.20 in the morning. Ordinarily, she leaves work. And on the way, John dropped off some laundry, um, was at his desk shortly before 8 o'clock. He thought about calling Sherry, but he didn't kind of want to disturb her if she ended up staying and sleeping in. He did try to call mid-morning, and there was no answer. Assumed, hey, guess she went to teach that class after all. Calls the office. Secretary said she hadn't seen her. Huh. On Mondays when she taught the class, the tech- secretary said sometimes she didn't come by the office at all. So John tries to call home three or four more times. No answer. It was odd that the answering machine had not been turned on, but sometimes Sherry does forget. It's now 9.45 in the morning. A neighbor notices that the uh, Rutan's garage door was open with no car visible. And 15 minutes later, uh, John made the first of several unanswered calls home over the course of the day. Rasmussen's sister calls. Still no answer. It's now noon. Two men who the neighbor, uh, who one of the neighbors believed were gardeners in the compound gave her and her husband a purse that they had found, which turned out to be Rasmussen's. I mean, dun, dun, dun. There it is. I was wondering when you're going to sneak that in. <laughs> then there's a maid that was actually cleaning a nearby unit. Said she heard something that kind of sounded like two young or two people fighting, something falling, and that was around 12:30 p.m. So, John, he's not really concerned at this point. On his way home early that evening, he decides to run some errands, stop at the dry cleaners, picked up uh, some laundry and all that good stuff. Stops at the UPS store. But when he pulls up to the garage behind their home, he was surprised to see that the door was open. The Balboa, uh, Balboa townhomes consisted of three-story white mock-to-door buildings with garage entrances on the ground floor in the back alley. Just above the garage was a small balcony before two sliding doors. The garage was just wide enough for their two cars. Sherry's BMW, which was actually an engagement gift once, was gone. And there were shards of broken glass on the pavement at the garage entrance. John's first thought was that the glass must have kind of came from one of the car windows. She probably ran into something when she was pulling out, because weeks earlier, she actually clipped the door and broke the um, the aerial on her car. He thought, uh-oh, what did she do now? He lifted the plastic bag of dry cleaning out of the cart, headed up to the garage stairs of the living room, and it wasn't until he saw the inner door to their living room open that he started to get worried. Huh. Yikes. And why he was worried? Because there she laid on the floor of the living room. She was on her back on the brown rug, her face swollen, battered, and bloody. She was barefoot, still in her red 
bathrobe. At first he thought that maybe she was sleeping, but then he saw her face and he knew, well, as he would tell a detective later, we were in trouble. Those who die violently leave life in mid-stride, often with a look of terminal surprise on their face, just kind of frozen. Sherry's robe was thrown open, her arms were raised and bent, and one long, slender leg was slightly raised and bent at the knee. She looked fixed in the act of trying to get up. John touches her leg. It was stiff. Her skin was cold. He put the fingers to her wrist to feel for a pulse, and there was none. Hmm. Sad. It is. And her face, obviously covered with dried blood, the right eyelid um, bluish and puffy and closed. Her left eye was open, staring, and her mouth was wide open in a final gasp. She had been dead for hours, just below the rim of her delicate, form-fitting pink camisole? Camisole. Nailed it. It's like a tank top, kind of. Right in the center of her chest was a black bullet hole. John picks up the phone, calls 911. So I feel like we should probably talk a little bit about the inis- uh, initial investigation, unless you've got something that uh, that, that you want to talk about at, mm-hmm. at this point. No? No. All right. So we have the LAPD detectives investigate the case quickly, and they concluded that Rasmussen had been surprised and killed by a burglar. Rasmussen's attire, obviously, that we just talked about, suggested that she was not expecting visitors. Although a maid in a neighboring unit reported hearing screaming and fighting earlier in the day, she did not recall hearing gunshots. Shut the whole event had been a uh, domestic dispute, so she didn't think that she needed to call the police. Apparently some stuff goes down in the townhouses. It appeared that the perpetrator had been in the process of taking electronic equipment when Rasmussen came upon them, and as a result, jewelry had been left behind and the vehicle was taken as a getaway vehicle. The abandoned BMW was recovered a week later, and there was just no new evidence there. The only other item that appeared to have been taken from the home was the couple's marriage license. Interesting. Right? Hmm. Lead detective Lyle Mayer, John Mayer's probably distant cousin, did consider other possibilities. He quickly rolled out that the grieving Rutin, which John was uh, not a suspect. He quit his job and moved from L.A. shortly after the murder. Um, Sherry's father and the wife told Mayer about how she was being harassed by the cop and they actually made note of it. And then later, John told police that uh, Sherry and um, and them just never really discussed. This again, Lazarus. Lazarus. Yeah, never discussed it. I mean, initially, obviously, hearing the story, uh, I mean, that's got to be a suspect, right? You would think. You would think. Um, regardless, though, the police remain focused on the possibility of a burglary, especially in light of one reported in the same area later in which one of the two reported suspects had been carrying a gun, possibly a 38 caliber, like the one that had been fired uh, three bullets into Sherry that were later identified by experts as a federal 38 J plus P. I don't know much about guns, but that's what I put in our research. Um, Mayor's partner, Steve Hooks, found a bite mark that was unusual because usually bite marks are, you know, they happen during a struggle and they're much more commonly inflicted by women, not men, while the majority of burglars tend to be male. However, because men have bitten opponents uh, during fights as well, the burglary theory stood. <laughs> and then like we've seen so many times in the things that we've done, the case goes cold. Even with using a federal weapon. You would think that could potentially... That would be a red flag to look into that for this person. You would think so. Especially since she was there in uniform. 
You would, yeah, you would think so. Huh. Um, so the suspect, uh, suspected burglars to whom detectives ascribed to the crime remain at large, despite a follow-up newspaper story eight months later. And now there's a reward by the Rasmussen family. The LAPD, preoccupied with the violence resulting from gang wars and the crack epidemic plaguing the city at the time, they were unable to devote much more attention to the case. The Rasmussen said the detectives at the Van News office, pretty sure I'm saying that right, were often unhelpful when the family called, hanging up, putting them on hold. A year after the murder, the frustrated family reiterated their offer at a press conference and called for more action. Which, that seems to be a very common theme, mm-hmm. where families have to fight and fight and fight, especially in this time. And I get it. Well, I don't get it because I'm not a cop, but there's some busy, I know, uh, you know, police task force and everything. So, mm-hmm. it, And it does take time. So, But in the meantime, Lazarus continues working with the LAPD. She wanted to start her own private investigation firm, Unique Investigations. In 1987, she earned medals, including one gold at the World Police and Fire Games in San Diego. 1993, after stints at the department's Drug Abuse Resistance Education Internal Affairs Division, she becomes a detective. Three years later, she marries a fellow officer and adopted a daughter with him, moving back to Simi Valley at work. She became an instructor at the police academy. So in the late 1990s, after DNA testing had kind of become more prominent, the LAPD formed a new unit that looked through forensic evidence collected from the department's cold case files to determine whether they had any potential new leads through DNA testing. Among the evidence seen as likely to do so was that collected from the Rasmussen residence. However, again, that was the late 90s. It's not till 2004 that another criminalist, Jennifer Francis, was able to analyze this DNA Some of the evidence from the Rasmussen case, including that which might have contained the suspect's DNA, was missing, having been Hmm. collected in 1993 by another detective. Interesting. Right? Sounds very suspicious. Almost sounds like somebody knows what they're doing. Hmm. Francis did not find any uh, matches in the combined DNA index system database, but did find that the saliva in it had come from a female undermining the initial detective's burglary theory. Several years later, time continually ticks on this poor family. Francis claimed that unusually she had access to not just the sample, but the entire case file, which had been given to her to help her decide which other samples to analyze. Upon discovering that the biter and likely perpetrator was female, she reviewed it and came across a report of a third-party female who allegedly harassed the victim at her job and residence before the murder. So Francis asked the detective supervising her if this woman had been investigated, to which he supposedly responded with, Oh, you mean the LAPD detective? He elaborated that the woman, a former girlfriend of the victim's husband, was in fact a current LAPD detective. But... She's not a part of this, they said. He insisted that the case was simply a burglary, as the department had long concluded no other detective would pursue the case. And the evidence goes back into the files. That's crazy. Isn't it? So then, (laughs) a second investigation happens. By 2009, crime in Los Angeles had declined enough that uh, it's earlier levels that the detectives begin looking into cold cases to increase their clearance rates. So Jim Natal and Pete Barba reviewed the Rasmussen file and found it interesting enough to be worth pursuing because the DNA tested, uh, the DNA test, sorry, pointed to a female suspect. They actually decided the burglary theory was invalid 
and they would have to start all over from the beginning. So the two of them look at the case as murder with the burglary staged to throw the police off the trail. Many aspects of the crime were improbable for a break-in, especially one committed in daylight. The jewelry box and inviting target for a burglar was in plain sight um, atop the dresser, never was even touched. The condo was in the middle of a gated complex surrounded by other units from which burglars could have expected to be easily observed. The front door had an alarm warning and had not been forced open, as it might have been, you know, if the burglars and, you know, they were caught off guard and maybe not expecting anybody to be home. Inside, a key aspect of the crime scene was also inconsistent with the burglary theory. At the top of the stairs was a stack of stereo equipment atop a VCR. If, as the evidence suggested, the struggle between Rasmussen and her attacker had begun upstairs and then continued downstairs, the stack would have likely been knocked downstairs and scattered everywhere. Made more sense to assume that it had been stacked afterwards when an actual burglar would have probably fled the scene immediately after shooting somebody. Hmm. Huh. I like these guys. Uh-huh. They're thinking like thinkers. Hmm. Detectives. The forensics reinforced this theory. On a record player atop the stack was a thumb-shaped bloodstain. It had no print, suggesting whoever left it was wearing gloves to avoid leaving identification. But the blood was Rasmussen, suggesting the equipment had been stacked after the struggle and shooting. It had been left behind, the detectives realized, to make the crime look like something other than what it really was. From the four bound volumes of the case file, they developed a list of five female suspects. Nathal was taken aback when John told him over the phone that Lazarus was a police officer. By then, Lazarus had been promoted to a higher level of detective and was working art theft cases as part of the commercial crimes division. So as one of the two detectives in the nation's only full-time unit devoted to that specialty, she then gained some local media attention when she and her partner had recovered a statue stolen from Carthay Circle. Don't know anything about that, do you? Nope. Hmm. To better understand the field, she told a local newspaper she had begun learning to paint. Off the job, Lazarus had been active in the Los Angeles Women Police Officers Association and organized child care for families of officers. She also made chocolate-covered cherries and homemade soap for her neighbors in Simi Valley for Christmas. Since Lazarus... Uh, uh, Lazarus? That's the one, Lazarus. <laughs> I, was, I keep thinking Nazareth. Like, for some reason, I see that and I think the band... I don't, my brain's a weird place. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. I don't know. No, nah, I think you're doing well. Uh, was still in the <laughs> Since she was still in the department, Natal and Barba realized they would have to proceed very carefully. Still, they ranked Lazarus, uh, Lazarus as the least promising of the five suspects since they read the, in the files that she and John had ended any relationships they had over the summer before the murder. So... The investigation soon eliminated all but one of the other women. The other, a former co-worker of Rasmussen, who had some disputes with her, but was quickly eliminated by um, the DNA samples that were collected. So guess who's left? Lazarus. So they keep her, uh, they kept their investigation a closely guarded secret. Not only did her husband also work in the commercial crimes division as a detective, she may have had um, other friends who could have kind of, you know, tipped her off that they were kind of looking into things. If she were the killer, she could have improved her defense. If she were not, then they could have unintentionally smeared a fellow officer who had an unblemished service record over the course of her career with no disciplinary investigations or civilian complaints. They referred to her only as 
number five and worked on the case after hours <laughs> or behind closed doors and developed cover stories to explain why they wanted to look at personal records for one particular officer from 20 years ago. Number five. You like that? I do. <laughs> the detectives <laughs> begin looking into other aspects of her life during the mid-1980s. Another detective recalled that at the time, most LAPD officers had preferred a 38 as their backup or off-duty carry gun. In fact, they were required to purchase only weapons compatible with the Federal Plus P ammunition that had been used in the murder. State and departmental records showed that she had indeed owned a Smith & Wesson Model 4938 at the time and reported it stolen to Santa Monica Police, but not to her own department, 13 days after the murder. Since the location where she reported it stolen was near a popular pier, they assume she threw the gun in the Pacific Ocean. Without the weapon, DNA would be the only definite way to connect her to the crime. So they then, uh, huh. Natal and Barbara, Barba theorized from their own experience about how an LAPD officer would commit a murder. It would be better to do it on a day off, and departmental records showed that she indeed had been off that day that she was killed. My, my, my. Officers would know better than to use their duty gun since it would uh, then have to be disposed of after the crime and penalties for losing a duty gun or failing to prevent its theft were pretty severe. Instead, it made sense to use a backup gun like the 38. Lastly, a working patrol officer would know how to do just enough to make the crime seem look like an interrupted burglary to satisfy an overworked detective. So Nels told Natal about uh, her continued contact with his daughter, which had not been in the files, despite him mentioning it frequently during Mayer and Hook's interviews. Realizing that she was now their prime suspect, the detectives informed their superiors and arranged to discreetly collect a voluntary discarded DNA sample from her, knowing that could uh, that they could do so without having to get a warrant, which would have led, um, you know, she would know that, hey, I'm under investigation so while off-duty running errands, she discarded a cup from what she had been drinking, which officers snagged. Sample was taken from it. Guess what? It matched the DNA from the bite mark from Sherry Rasmussen. Wow. They arrest her. How many years later is this? I mean, we're Quit. easily. Uh, the last kind of, I think it's 2009 is when she's arrested. And she was what, murdered in 1985? Mm-hmm. So, Something like that. Yeah. Notice. So that is, um, that's some years. That's uh, 24 years huh. have passed. Man. Rob Bubb, the homicide detective supervisor with an amazing name, began letting his senior officers all the way up to Chief William Breton. Breton? Breton? <laughs> I think, I don't know. It sounds fancier with Breton. <laughs> and they know of the case along the senior prosecutors from the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. It was transferred to the Robbery Homicide Division, RHD, which handled many of the department's high-profile cases, including the Art Theft Bureau, where she worked herself. Her arrest was planned carefully. On the day of the arrest, in June 2009, dozens of officers arrive. I oh. think this is going to go down. Shock and awe. What? <laughs> Surprise. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, after being briefed on a search warrant, they were told they we uh, it would be executed outside the city. But with few details beyond that, they went to wait near her house and 
guess what? <coughs> Excuse me. A short time later, detectives from the RHE who had been selected for their lack of personnel connection to her called her from the lockup at Parker Center, the department's headquarters. They ordered that the location would be used since she would uh, have to surrender her gun and equipment belt in order to enter it, limiting the possibility she might resist violently when she was arrested. Mm. That's smart. Yeah. Um, Then they realize, um, obviously, um, she would not only say, hey, I'm going to be arrested, but I may be the prime suspect. I'm going to get a little squirrely. So Mm. the detectives, Greg um, Stearns and Dan... Dan Jay told her that they had someone in custody custody who they wanted to talk to about art theft. So she checks her gun and everything, enters the interrogation room. They explain that this was really about some loose ends. They were trying to tie up to the Rasmussen case since her name had come up in the investigation. They claimed that uh, they wanted a private setting because while John was an old boyfriend, she had uh, kind of been long married to someone else and they didn't want the private life to become the subject of office gossip. Stearns and Dan Jay uh, knew that they would have to tread carefully since she herself was aware of the police interview techniques and her rights to silence in legal counsel, which she could invoke at any time. That's got to be tricky. Mm-hmm. You know everything. Man. So that is basically tricking her at this point. Yeah, they're out thinking a thinker. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they rambled and digressed from the subject at times, sometimes discussing unrelated police business, but eventually came back to Rasmussen. She claimed to recall little due to the, uh, you know, so many years that had passed, but gradually revealed more and more knowledge, including oblique acknowledgments of her visit to John's condo in a specific encounter with Sherry at her office until she accused her colleagues of considering her a suspect. The detectives mentioned it was possible that they had DNA evidence from the crime scene and requested DNA samples from her. She declines and then left the room. As she walked into the hallway, she was met by officers who placed her under arrest. Oof. Right? Rough day for her. Yeah, well, rightfully so. (laughs) Once she had been arrested... The police officer teams in Simi Valley began searching her home and car. In her house, they found her journal from the mid-1980s with numerous mentions of her love for John and her um, how she was just really pissed, I don't know how else to put it, over the engagement <laughs> to Sherry um, and no mentions of her gun actually having been stolen. Her computer shows that she had searched the internet for John's name on several occasions during the late 1990s. As the investigating uh, detectives had been, many of, uh, you know, other LAPD officers were stunned at the idea that she could have actually murdered somebody. I mean, you got to think she's done a lot since Mm -hmm. then for the community. She was making chocolate covered cherries for people, (laughs) adopting kids. You know what I mean? Like she, she seems like a pretty decent person, Mm -hmm. but she wasn't. Fellow detectives actually recall her vivacious and supportive, although some all recalled that her behavior when angry had led to, you know, a spazarous kind of situations. That everything. was her nickname. Yeah, that was her nickname. <laughs> I mean, she spaz. Anyways, a case she had been developing from her art theft work with elder abuse and real estate fraud aspects had to be dropped since it was highly unlikely that it could be prosecuted successfully if the lead investigator herself were facing a murder charge. 
So mm-hmm. after she arrest, she was allowed to retire from the LAPD. She was held in Los Angeles County Jail. A bail hearing was not held for almost six months. Judge Robert J. Perry surprised both sides when he set the amount at $10 million in cash, well above what the defense had suggested and more than twice what prosecutors had proposed. The case against her was very strong, he said, and thus she uh, would be at risk to flee the country or obtain weapons through her husband. Their lawyer, Mark Overland, said the judge did not understand the case well and contrasted the high figure with the $1 million set for Robert Blake and Phil Spector when they were charged with murder. Several months later, her brother claimed she was not receiving adequate treatment from an unspecified cancer while in custody. Huh. So she did it, she murdered, and she spends a lot of time in jail. Huh. Wild, right? Mm-hmm. Man. Man, oh, man. And you would have thought I had a quote prepared, but I didn't. And I'm sorry. Do you want to, do you want to read the sources while I, on the fly, find a quote? <laughs> uh, or would you like me to read it? Um, so, yeah, yeah findagrave.com, <laughs> thecrimewire.com, vanityfair.com, and our favorite? Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Um, so what's your overall kind of just take on this? I, it's just wild how long some of these cases take. Right. unravel I, mean, I know it's a lot due to like technology and advances in science mm-hmm. but man that's a long time long time for that poor family hmm. all right well the first quote that i see in here is the more i research the police the more it reinforces my beliefs that they are shady and potentially dangerous by stephen mcgee That was was a good one, right? (laughs) Well said, Stephen McGee. I don't know anything about you, but uh, man, what? uh, It's just a crazy story that it, you know what I mean? And the parents, they seem to know exactly what was going on the whole time. And for just to be a burglary. I know. I just think it's crazy that so many pieces of it always get they i don't know it seems not always i shouldn't say always mm-hmm. but seems to be missing pieces that were presented that nobody does anything with yeah they just pretend they never were said or given to them mm-hmm. um so just to kind of you know we don't want to leave you hanging and this one was fairly recently by the time it actually went to court um there was deliberation she's then 52 at the time and this is in 2023 was convicted of first degree murder she was actually sentenced to 27 years to life in prison and is still serving her sentence at the California Institution for Women in Corona. Um, yeah. And like I said, uh, initially suitability parole hearing took place on November 16, 2023, and she was recommended for parole. So I guess we'll have to see. Maybe we'll do a follow-up episode just quickly at some point to kind of see uh, potentially how... You wouldn't think that uh, she would make parole, but you never know. <laughs> Crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, all right, that's all we got. I'm going to wrap this up. Can't thank you enough, Meg. For anybody that's still listening, again, this is a little bit of a longer episode. Um, like I said, we just really, if we're going to do some true crime stuff, we really want all of the details. We want to build the story, and uh, we just wanted to kind of see how this does, and hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Did you, did you like that, Meg? Yeah. 
That's a good one. If anything, it got us 30 to 40 minutes away from the crazy kids in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, either way, we can't thank you enough. We'll be back next week for another episode of the Your Town Podcast. Hopefully you guys have a good rest of your day and week. And that's all I got. Anything else? Nope. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. Okay, later. Bye. Bev's Video Kingdom. Because the movies won't talk about themselves. So Andy crawls through this river of he comes out, visits a dozen banks, and no one's like, I'm a little concerned about the guy in the suit. <laughs> right. It smells like you mean, you, mean, you mean the guy that literally washed himself in a river full of s***? Are you supposed to sell it, smell good? Dude, that's completely the mall rat stink palm, which takes like three or four days to wash off. Oh, last time I scratched my ass, it smelled like Bigfoot's dick for a week. <laughs> Bev's Video Kingdom. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi! I'm Don Brody, a comedian with a history degree and the host of the podcast, Hilf, History I'd Like to Fuck. Each episode, I am joined by a new guest who has brought me a subject from history that they want to know more about. Then I hit the books, I dig deep in the annals, and stimulate. <laughs> We've covered Frankenstein, Houdini, Joan of Arc, Pompeii, the Salem Witch Trials, right? Ugh. Join us and find out for yourself that history is a party. And everybody's coming. <laughs> this is Take on the World with Johnny and Mike. And, you know, people always ask me, hey, you got a podcast? What's it about? Uh, I don't know. You ever want to uh, cut your fingers off or learn about a sharp knife? <laughs> we could tell you that. <laughs> How about uh, murder mysteries or... Uh, hauntings or any kind of fringe subject anything you can think of we take on everything because we take on the world now you do a take on the world